opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, and good evening, everybody. Welcome to Untangling Transportation. My name is Ron Brooks, and I am the uh, founder and CEO of Accessible Avenue. We, we host these calls once a month, and our goal is to help you untangle transportation challenges. And uh, before I jump into this month's topic, I just want to acknowledge uh, some folks. I want to acknowledge uh, Natalie, who is our host tonight. So she is going to be the one who uh, calls on people when we get down to the uh, question and answer and conversation part of this meeting. And she's the one that will um, nicely um, comment, you know, ask you to mute if you're um, unmuted before it's time. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, Katie Frederick, who is streaming for us on ACB Media, uh, which brings me to welcoming folks both on the call and those of you who are on ACB Media listening in. We are really glad to have you and hope that this topic will be uh, interesting and informative. And I got to start. So this topic is very, very personal uh, for me. Uh, I remember back when my wife and I, um, Lisa, were young, younger, um, a couple, and we had our kids and we had our kids. We have three. They're now teenagers and going to college and moving out. And, and um, so, so we're at a different phase in our lives. But there was a time when our kids were all young, all under three. We had our kids 37 months separated our first to our third child. And I remember, since neither of us drive, I remember, the. I think the most exciting moment in my uh, life as a parent trying to manage transportation was... I remember walking down a street in Phoenix in probably in the spring or summer when it was pretty hot. And I had my youngest who was, you know, relatively, you know, a baby in a backpack carrier. And she was, you know, with between her and her stuff, she probably weighed about 30 pounds. I was pulling a wagon which held the other two who at that point would have been two and three respectively. They were seat belted into this wagon, which I was pulling with one hand working a guide dog with my other hand on a narrow sidewalk with traffic whizzing by and thinking there has to be a better way. But at that time there wasn't, that was it. We did not as a family travel anywhere for probably three or four years at the same time. It was it was impossible. Um, so we could go in groups of up to one or two if we took paratransit, depending on how generous they were with the term personal care attendant. I mean, if your three-year-old can be a personal care attendant, um, we just didn't go anywhere. And, and it was really, really tough. So I am really excited because one of the things that's starting to happen is, is paratransit providers and even the federal government, which is, um, which is now um, starting to talk about pilot projects, um, are recognizing that people with disabilities have families and they, they have kids and kids forget the project that's due tomorrow and kids have to get to, to daycare and they have to be dropped off and parents actually have to go to work sometimes. So I'm really excited to have Mike Greenwood, who is somebody that I've known in the industry for, for quite a while, and he's the chief operating officer at um, Access Services, which is the paratransit provider serving uh, the metropolitan Los Angeles area, which, of course, is a huge area. It's a huge program um, with you know, multiple providers serving a very large region in Southern California. And back late <clears throat> in 2021, uh, Access launched a pilot program to help parents with disabilities use paratransit, drop their kids off, and then continue on to work, which is something that did not exist um, anywhere, uh, certainly back when I was a, a young parent, and even now it's extraordinarily rare. So he's gonna talk about that program, that pilot, and some of the other things that Access is doing to help folks with disabilities. Uh, we're sharing this information, uh, one, because it's cool, 
um, if you're a parent. And two, because these are the kind of programs that we think there's going to be pilot money uh, pretty soon uh, to help support. And so for those of you in communities that have paratransit, where this would be helpful, this is information you can use as you advocate within your community. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mike to talk about what they're doing in Los Angeles. After that, we'll get into some conversation and go from there. So Mike, take it away. All right. Thank you for that nice introduction, Ron. It's good to be with you all tonight from Los Angeles. Uh, first of all, I'd like to provide a little bit more background on the agency I work for and how we operate ADA service in Los Angeles. So uh, go ahead and start off with a little bit more about uh, Access. So Access is one of the largest paratransit operators in the United States, but it's also unlike any other. And I say that because we're not just a department inside a transit agency. We operate ADA paratransit service on behalf of 46 different fixed route operators in Los Angeles County. And that goes from the biggest to the smallest uh, bus operators. That includes LA Metro, Foothill Transit, Long Beach Transit, and the City of LA Department of Transportation. So as Ron mentioned, we also have a huge service area. It's basically all of the urban and suburban areas of LA County, and that's just under 2,000 square miles. In fact, it's so big, we divided our service area up into six distinct service regions. Uh, that does not impose restrictions on our riders, but it does allow us to contract out um, in manageable chunks to our operating contractors. Um, within LA, we have roughly 115,000 eligible riders, but many do not actually ride our service on a daily basis. Instead, many of them take advantage of the free fare programs on many of our fixed route bus operators. That gives some of our riders who can ride fixed route more options. One day they may wanna use fixed route and the next day they may want to or need to use paratransit service. So we are a small agency in some respects in that we have only 74 employees, but we're also a big agency with roughly 2,200 contracted employees, and that includes drivers, call takers, mechanics, and support staff. So we do contract out all of our operations to the private sector. We have six different operating contracts. We also have an eligibility contract and a customer service contract. Our fleet is the second largest in the United States with more than 1,100 vehicles, 736 of them access provides to our contractors most of the rest of the other vehicles are taxi cabs, which operate as subcontractors to our regional providers. The pandemic and changes in state law has had a significant and severe impact on the cab industry in Los Angeles. Prior to the pandemic, half of all access trips were performed by taxi cabs. That number is now down to about one third of our trips. Access's annual operating budget is $220 million, and it's expected to grow to just over $250 million next year. And as the coordinated agency operating paratransit service in LA for so many different fixed route operators, we do offer some services that go beyond the minimum requirements of the ADA. One example is that our reservation hours, our window for making reservations goes well beyond what's considered business hours. In fact, for most of our service area, a rider can make a reservation between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. We, we also offer online reservations in three of our six service regions and the other three regions will be operational with online reservations possible, uh, hopefully by the end of this month. Um, so that's some background. Now I'd like to shift into what I was asked to talk about today primarily, and that's one of our other premium programs known as Parents with Disabilities. Internally, and with some of our riders, it's known as PWD for short, because everybody likes an acronym. So that service was designed to make it easier for disabled parents to get their students to school and school-related activities, as Ron mentioned. As many of you may imagine, using regular ADA service to take your kids to school is not real easy. In fact, in some cases, it's just impossible. So this program dates all the way back to 2013 uh, when it was first implemented in only one 
of our six service regions, specifically in our San Fernando Valley service region. So it chugged along with a couple of dozen riders who had signed up for it for a number of years. And don't ask me why we still called it a pilot all the way in 2020. Uh, the word pilot really doesn't apply for something implemented in 2013 and was operating for seven years, but we still called it a pilot. Um, it was initially funded by a new freedom grant from the federal government. And back at the time that we secured that grant, um, it was about $1.1 million. And I'm sure many of you are interested in how do I get a grant now in 2022 that might be able to uh, provide some funding for this type of service. So initially that $1.1 million was divided up three ways. We had three different elements. Um, $50,000 went to a consultant to help design the service initially, because it was unique. It hadn't been done before that, that we were aware of. Um, $166,000 went to purchasing three vehicles, which were used for the initial kickoff of the service, two minivans and one cutaway, which uh, if you're not familiar with, is also known as a minibus. And the rest of the money, a little over $900,000, was reserved for the actual operation of the service. Um, after a number of years, we completely exhausted that money and Access decided to keep it going uh, using local money. Um, by 2018, uh, that money had run out and we still had a, you know, an outcrying of support for that service from our San Fernando Valley service region, from some of our writer advocates, and other parts of the county were asking for it as well. But at that time, we didn't have funding for it. So with the help of our advocates uh, and staff working collaboratively uh, and working with our funding agency, LA Metro, uh, we got a three-year commitment to continuing the service, but expanding it beyond just one service region, expanding it countywide, providing equity countywide, um, and that's where we're at right now. So now I'm going to talk about service as it's known uh, throughout the county. So that what I'd call the full-fledged and new parents with disabilities program has a number of unique elements that set it aside from normal ADA paratransit service. And I'm going to go over some of that. So the service is available to both parents and legal guardians. Um, we haven't expanded it to include grandparents and aunts and uncles. It's just for parents and legal guardians. It's set up to provide on-time school drop-offs. Kids obviously can't get to school an hour before the bell rings, especially if they're young. Uh, we can't drop them off after the bell rings because then they're tardy. So we've developed the service to keenly hone in on getting them to school on time. And then same thing after school's over at the end of the day, picking them up shortly after they get released, not an hour after they get released from school. Um, most parents don't want their kids hanging out. Uh, schools don't want the kids hanging out after school ends. Um, so we really focus on getting them picked up shortly after school gets out. There are two options uh, for the service that the parents get to choose. And it generally depends on how old the students are, how old the children are. The parent can stay on board the vehicle and little Johnny walks gets out the vehicle and walks on into school. But we also offer the ability where the rider with their student can exit the vehicle and they can accompany their student into school and we'll send another vehicle to pick them up a little bit later. We generally try to give that a 15 minute window, but we don't want the vehicle sitting there for 15 minutes. It needs to get on and continue with, with service, picking up and dropping off other riders. So we do pick, uh, use a different vehicle to pick them up but we try to uh, make that a very short time span, enough time to walk your kid into school, maybe talk to the teacher, chat with some other parents, and then get back out for your trip to your next destination, whether that be back home or to, your, or to work or to, your, uh, to another destination. And we not only uh, created the service for school purposes, but also school-related activities, which could be after-school sports, could be banned, drama, um, various after-school activities, but it's got to be school-related. This, this service is not designed to take Johnny to Little League or to karate or something like that after school. It's specifically for school-related activities. 
We also offer a reduced fare. Our regular ADA service fare is $2.75 for trips under 20 miles and $3.50 for trips that are 20 miles or longer. But for our parents with disabilities program, the fare is only $2. And that dates back to the pilot program that was grant funded. We didn't change that fare when we expanded it to go countywide. We also offer the ability for a limited number of same day trips. This was designed and accounts for a student maybe getting sick at school and needing to get picked up early. That would count as a same day trip. Those are capped at four per month and they're meant for emergencies. Um, so those are some of the program parameters. Now, a little bit into how we promoted this. When we went from one region to countywide, it was imperative that we got the word out because there is an application involved to sign up for the program. So we had uh, a hold message for a good part of six months put on all of our region's reservations lines. So when riders would call to make a trip reservation, they would hear the hold message advertising the coming of the expanded Parents with Disabilities program. We believe that's how we got word out to most of uh, our riders, especially the ones that eventually signed up for the, the new program. We then called after we heard back from some riders, we got uh, questions. Once we had all the final program parameters worked out, we made contact with roughly 130 customers that at some point in time had expressed interest in the program. Based on those phone calls, we sent out applications that went out to roughly 90 parents or guardians. And when we got this program approved by our board of directors, we had to set a budget. It couldn't be open-ended. This is uh, what we call premium service. So um, we couldn't just allow this thing to go uh, to, to go expanded infinitely. So we set a cap uh, for the first year. We capped it uh, at 56 initial riders. And we spread that out sort of a... Uh, equitably among our six service regions. And we currently have 33 customers that are signed up and using the Parents with Disabilities program. So we do have more capacity um, and we're taking applications and we're ready to add more riders into the program. Um, starting in October, we expanded promotion to partner agencies. We're uh, advertising it to our Rider Advocacy Committee. Um, we've added information onto our website. Uh, and again, we're still taking applications. Um, some of those partners that we reached out to, we have a community advisory committee that's made up of riders and advocates. We also have a close relationship with the Los Angeles County Commission on Disabilities and the Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center. So we got word out to, uh, to our partners at those agencies. Um, so I think that's, uh, we do, uh, we have filled up all of our spots in two of our service regions. So we have a waiting list in those other two. Um, one of the things our board wanted us to be focused on was an equitable distribution of the service within our service regions. And that's why we're filled up in two regions and, uh, we're running a little bit short with open spots in four of the other service regions. So. As I mentioned, we're, we divide our service area up into six regions. And if you're familiar with Los Angeles, we basically have north, south, east, and west. And then up in the northern part of the county, we've got two small regions, the Antelope Valley and the Santa Clarita region. So of the eligible riders in the Parents with Disabilities Program, we have 17 riders in our southern region, which basically makes up the South Bay area of Los Angeles and uh, Southeast Los Angeles. And then our northern region has 11 riders, San Fernando Valley. And then in terms of ridership, so since the program was expanded, it, uh, it started up effective with the new school year, which started in August of 2021. To date, we have done just over 5,000 trips to our parents with disabilities riders. Uh, Southern region, as I mentioned, we've got more riders in that region than anywhere else. And more than half of the trips have been done in the Southern region. Um, also, we're tracking on-time performance it's consistently been above 95%, which is a critical when you, when you have to get your kids to school on time. So we set a very high goal for on-time performance. Um, and the most recent reporting period 
um, on-time performance was coming in at almost 99%. So um, our riders are very happy with the service. We did a, a survey with them a few months back and we got really positive results. Um, I think we've had one complaint since August. Uh, and uh, in talking with some riders that have had late trips, um, in some cases, these late trips have, have been due to the rider just getting to the vehicle at home late and thus they're getting the school a little bit late. So they didn't have anything to complain about. So that is a little background into our Parents with Disabilities program. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I, Ron, I, I can talk to you. Uh, I can answer sure. questions about anything related to access, but uh, definitely want to provide uh, answers to questions about Parents with Disabilities. Well, let, let's dive in. I'm going to ask you a couple of real quick ones just for clarification. Uh, one of them is that this is school-age kids only. This does not include pre-K child care. Is that correct? That's correct. Starts with kindergarten uh, and it goes through uh, age 16. So we figured um, that by the time kids are old enough to drive, they, they're not going to want to ride paratransit service with mom or dad to get to school. So um, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I have teenagers. Um, they cringe. Um the other question I have for you is how do you handle child care, uh, child safety seats? So it's the parent's responsibility to provide the child safety seat. Our drivers will assist them, but it's the, the rider's responsibility to both bring it and secure their child in the safety seat um, with the driver assisting as necessary. Got it. All right. I want to open it up now for other folks if you have comments or questions. Um, so Natalie, if you want to. Uh, kind of call on folks and on, and what would be great for me um, and maybe for Mike as well is if you could, when you introduce yourself, if you could say the city and state where you are um, and then ask your question, that way we can get a sense of where our audience is and maybe what the transit agencies are, um, you know, where you are. Okay. Um, Travis, you can go ahead and unmute, please. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing? Doing great. Travis. Hey, very good. Hey, uh, so I actually do have a question, actually. Um, this is actually, you know, regarding the youth and everything. Um, that is great that you are, you know, developing the, you know, the parents with disabilities, you know, for your child to ride access, you know, Mike, you know, the, you know, to get to school and everything. I think that's a great program. But um, so anyway, first of all, I'm from uh, Templeton, California, but my big question is, if, if the kids have to be kindergarten through uh, 16 years of age, one question I have is what if they're blind? You know, the kid is blind or visually impaired and they can't drive, you know, when they're 16 and beyond. That's my big question, Mike. So uh, the restrictions that were approved by a board of directors, or I wouldn't say restrictions, are parameters that were approved by a board. Um, we, had, we had to operate the program within a certain budget. Um, so we had to make some calls on who was going to be eligible and what the parameters of eligibility would be. So we caught it off at 16. So I understand that there could be a 17 year old child of a writer um, that might need some service like this, but uh, we had to do, we had to do a cutoff uh, at 16. And I'd assume that they would be eligible probably for paratransit on their own at that point anyway. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. That, yeah. I'm glad to know that. Now, my next big question I do have, what about for those who are in preschool or TK, you know, transitional kindergarten? Yeah, that, again, yeah. again, our program had to have some parameters, and I can understand uh, parents have a need to take their kids to a number of activities prior to kindergarten. Um whether that's school or are there other things, but uh, yes, this program wouldn't necessarily be for those, those individuals. At least not yet. So great. That's uh, good some, next, Yeah. Go ahead. No, you guys are doing great. And Mike, you're doing a great job. And I think this is a good program and there'll be any, if other uh, transit agencies across the state and all, and all can um, implement it. I, I think this is a good program. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, next, Natalie, who do we have? Donna. So this is very exciting. Uh, I work for a paratransit system in Alexandria, Virginia, and um, I can think of a, several of our clients who would 
really benefit and be very interested in this program. Um, can you tell me a little bit um, how, um, how did you, like, we don't have a board of directors. Uh, how would you recommend that I help our program come up with a uh, program like this? I suggested to them to get them interested. Yeah. So, hi, Donna. It's nice to nice to be talking to you. Um, so, I would imagine if you don't have a board of directors, the Transit Agency in Alexandria might report to uh, city government, and then you have a city council, which probably authorizes the budget for the the paratransit operation. Would that be mm -hmm. correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. That would be the equivalent of our board of directors would be your city council and um, going up through the chain of command and building interest in providing some extra benefits to the disabled community would be one strategy. And then if you could get a grant to help pay for it, you could get a lot of support from the disabled community in your area probably to speak on behalf of this. But I think it would take a team effort and you'd have to find a sponsor within your organization um, that be willing to, you know, have staff time uh, devoted to working on a grant and developing a program uh, for something like this. Certainly. I totally understand. Wow. Uh, it's, it's really um, exciting to hear this and hear that there are organizations out there willing to do this for the writers. Um, I'm excited. I will definitely be letting them know about you because I bet they want to take a look. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Well, one, thing, one thing I'll add um, that was paramount for this program getting up and running and for it continuing and expanding is I can't say enough about some of our writer advocates. Without them, there wouldn't have been pressure on my agency to keep working on this program. Right. It would have been easy for the agency to cut a premium service that's not required. Um, so if you really want to achieve this, I would encourage you to work with some of your community and writer advocates um, to sort of get behind this and even push it where staff at the agency sometimes can't always push this, push these projects. Right. Right. Yeah. We, uh, we're, we're, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to tell them about it and I will definitely be telling about you because like I say, they'll probably look you up and see what you've done. Um, Cause our program, it's basically redeveloping, you know, because we lost a portion of our program, but we're, we're slowly coming back. And um, I know that customers have mentioned something like this to us when we take reservations for them. And um, it would be exciting to let them know that there is something out there like it and that they need to get together and start talking to um, the people who run our program to start developing something like this for them. Great. And there is something out there that they can watch. Yep. And Donna, we're going to drop information about this program. We usually do a post call kind of summary with some links and resources, and we'll definitely include a link. Um, oh, great. to the access uh, services page about this program. Um, so you'll have some good uh, information you can share. Great, and, um, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Natalie, next. We do not have any hands at this moment. All right. Um, excellent. So, um, so this is um, a really great topic. I want to open it up now. And, you know, we have... Um, you know, somebody who has, um, you know, lots of, I won't say how much because I don't think I know how much, but lots of paratransit experience uh, from one of the largest agencies in the country. There's probably not much about paratransit Mike hasn't dealt with. So let's just open it up. If you are, uh, if you have some questions, uh, if you have some things you'd like to talk about with regard to paratransit. Now, this is not um, the hour when we talk about, you know, the trip you had yesterday was a total disaster and the driver was all, no, not that, we're not doing that. But if you have questions about service, about um, kind of how things are done, maybe in your, where you live versus in Los Angeles, uh, if you have thoughts about how 
you know, ideas on, on things that you've tried locally that you think are interesting or, or things that maybe you'd like to try. This would be a great time. We can open it up and just have, a, have an open conversation around paratransit. So we'll just allow people to have a minute here to ponder that question and um, see where we go. So, Mike, while we're letting the audience percolate, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question, and and um, I know that you know you guys have come out of pandemic, and one of the things we've seen in uh, across the industry is that services were you know they were booming uh, before the pandemic. Demand was up, people were taking lots of trips. We were starting to see a lot of pilot projects around on-demand transportation. And then COVID came along, closed us all down, sent us all home. And the industry as a whole has, has really lost a lot of its, its driver workforce. Uh, all of the providers who were, we were starting to do pilots with for on-demand transportation, they lost their driver workforce. And now we're starting to come back. And you know, I guess the question I would ask you is, what are you seeing in Los Angeles in terms of, of you know, where service is at in terms of coming back? And how has how have you been able to weather that storm with things like same day service and some of the other premium services that you're that you all are able to offer? Sure, Ron. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll mention we don't have outside of the four trips a month max. We don't offer same day service. We're completely next day. Okay, great. So, but there has been a demand for a number of years from our riders and our advocates that we bring back same day service. It, it was, it did, it was available yeah. in Los Angeles you know, 15, 20 years ago and it was cut and mm -hmm. there are, we still have riders that remember it and, and loved it <laughs> and want it back. So right. during the pandemic, we brought it back for 13 months. Ridership was so low in Los Angeles at the beginning of the pandemic, we had lots of drivers with nothing to do because most people were staying home. They weren't traveling or they were traveling much less. So we brought same-day service back as a convenience to our riders who might have needed to take spur-of-the-moment trips to go get groceries or, you know, to go to the pharmacy or what have you. And we wanted to keep our drivers busy so that our contractors wouldn't lay them off or furlough them. So we ran same-day service for 13 months. Um, but by last spring, ridership had come back enough where we had to put an end to that. and. Uh, I think we did over 56,000 same day trips over those 13 months. So it was very popular. So our riders are still asking for it to be brought back. And there's, there's been a push. So I think eventually we'll bring it back in some form. We'll probably have limitations on it, such as trips can't be more than 10 miles long, or you can't take more than four a month, but um, I think it'll come back in some way, but broader scope, the pandemic um, we're now back to about 70% of normal ridership. It was as low as about 25% early on in the early April of 2020. So we're coming back. Um, and while at the beginning we had lots of drivers with nothing to do, that's totally flip-flopped. Just like every transit agency across the country, uh, just like the restaurant industry and many retail sectors, we don't have enough employees on the contract side and our contractors are struggling to get enough drivers to provide the high level of service our riders are accustomed to. So with that, there's some variability on, we have certain days where we don't have enough drivers to meet our on-time performance goal and service isn't quite as good as we'd like it to be. Um, our contractors have had to get creative in trying to retain and attract drivers. They've raised wages, they're offering incentives, retention bonuses, um, Access has even gotten into the habit of coming up with ways to advertise job offerings at our contractors. Um, messages on reservation hold lines, advertising job openings, website banners. We're actually even paying now for Facebook ads to let the community know that we're looking for good people to drive and answer phone calls and maintain our vehicles. Awesome. Excellent. Natalie, do we have any questions in the queue? You do, um, Donna. 
So I have a couple. So um, you mentioned that a long time ago, you used to have same day reservations. Then you cut them and then they came back a little bit and then you cut them again. What, mm, what warrants that you're able to do it and what makes where you can't, what would make that, you know, what makes that, that change? The other thing, do y'all do shared rides on your um, trips? And we're definitely a shared ride service. We did stop doing shared rides uh, during the pandemic um, for the first, basically we did no share rides for about a year until demand got to the point where we just couldn't do it anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. Service quality was suffering. So we had to go back to shared rides. We did it gradually over a couple of months where we went partway back and then eventually full, full, full shared rides again. Um, can you go back and repeat the first part of that question? Certainly. So you mentioned that um, you had a time where you had same day service right? and then it went to no same day service and then you brought it back during the pandemic and then it's gone again. So what uh, transpires to make that change? You know, what, well, what happens to make it where you can do it and where you can't? Well, the, end of same day service that happened 15 years ago was uh, happened prior to my arrival at the agency. I worked for a fixed route transit operators prior to coming to access. My understanding is that the agency decided to, for financial reasons, cut many of the premium services that they offered at the time because ridership demand was increasing significantly. And the agency had to focus on what was mandated um, as opposed to trying to do too many things, but not do them very well. Mm-hmm. So that was the reason, my understanding of why it was cut 15 years ago. It was easy to bring it back during the pandemic because we had plenty of capacity. Uh, we knew riders had some new needs that weren't being met, and we did it for as long as we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it will come back, but... We're going to have to find a new model to bring same-day service back. It'll probably be a separate contract. Maybe it'll involve TNCs like Uber and Lyft. Um, But we're also concerned that demand could increase much more for same-day service than it would on next-day service. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. (laughs) The fiscal concern is there as well. Yep, I understand that, and that's what we think too. Because our service is considering it, um, but as a reservationist, I I could see where uh, it could cause major chaos. Um, do y'all ever have to um, deny people a ride? Like you have to call them and say we can't pick you up today. No, that is that's a terminal offense in the ADA transportation world. We. Do not intentionally ever deny service. Our contractors are under significant financial penalties for service denials. The only time we find it's happening is when a call taker makes an error, mm-hmm. um, as humans do occasionally, but we, yeah. we we pounce on it right away. Some of our contractors will fire a reservationist for a single denial. That's how serious we take it. Yeah, she's a reservationist. You're scaring her. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, 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 we understand. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. we have a system that uh, give, uh, does it to us sometimes where we didn't make the problem. It did it. it our system turns the AM and PMs. It's supposed to be a PM trip, and it'll put it at AM. And if we don't catch it in closing, it's a problem. Yeah, but right. um, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that y'all aren't having to do that because um, our system has had to do that, and it worries me. Um, being a client, also that you know, and so it's forced me um, to because ha- I have a choice of another pair of transit other than my own, and I've actually had to do that. And um, you know, we're we're trying to come, you know, we're trying to get better. But I was just curious if other systems have had to do that. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. job shortage is right. I mean, the, the, the labor shortages are real um, yeah. and they are challenging. And that is really the reason. And I've certainly heard of other smaller transit agencies in particular uh, really struggle w- with being able to make basic service and, yeah. and having to say we can't get to you or we can't get to you on time. And, and I would say I was just I'm actually at a conference right now. Uh, and, you know, we just had a session and I was a part of the panel 
uh, to talk about um, you know, creative ways to, to hire and retain employees. And I mean, I think the first part we is, was the, you know, the moderator going, okay, so you know, guys, how are you solving this problem? And we're all kind of looking at each other, waiting to see who has the right idea. Cause it, cause nobody, I mean, it's hard right now. Um, I, I did want to just comment kind of from my own experience, managing paratransit services in the Phoenix Metro area a few years ago, the, the, one of the things that really, really hurt um, a lot of the, the premium programs and Mike talked about 15 years ago, if you do the math, 15 years ago was 2007, maybe 2008, depending, you know, if it, how tight that estimate is. And there was something that happened called the, called the great recession. And uh, it, you know, it really, really, really hammered local revenues in particular were hit very, very hard. So a lot of systems across the country cut a lot of things in 2007, eight, nine, uh, we were seeing a lot, lots of services were pulled back to to what was mandated by law simply because local money in particular was not available to pay for um, premium services, which are mostly funded with local money. So, I mean, most transit is funded with local money. So, so this, you know, these, these services were all, you know, really subject to a lot of cuts back then. Um, and I would, I would say also that we in the Phoenix Metro area have a lot of of same-day transportation options, but they do create uh, a challenge. Um, even though they do cost, because we're able to, to change policy for those services, you can offer them in very different ways with very different rules. Even so, uh, the service may cost 15, 20, 25, 30% less. We would see, um, and, and yeah, there's some math behind it, but we saw about 11 or 12% increase in demand for service that cost, you know, it, so it cost 20% less. So the net gain, the net was still positive, but it was, it was almost neutral by the time you'd looked at the cost of the service versus the increase in demand. So, you know, it does, it's a balancing act. And, and I would say that if you're advocating for service um, in a community and, and you really, really want that same day service, you know, part of the, part of the conversation needs to be, you know, what do we need it for? And what kind of, you know, where can we uh, agree with our local transit agency to put some parameters around it so that we can have it for what we really need, recognizing that um, in at least for now, at least until money is different and, and driver shortages aren't so significant, we may have to um, kind of walk into same-day service incrementally, uh, starting with what we truly need, um, and then maybe moving a little bit more toward other things as we go. So uh, it's definitely a great conversation. Um, and it's something that, you know, within the ACB and some of the committees that work on transportation, you know, we're talking about, yeah, how do we advocate and what do we advocate for given the funding that's out there for transportation and given the challenges that, you know, the industry is facing? Because we can, at, we can ask all we want, but we need to be asking for things that there's a, at least a snowball's chance of getting um, uh, because it's more effective to advocate it in an environment where you, where there's where you can create a win. So, so definitely, you know, we're going to continue to be talking about these issues uh, within ACB, and uh, definitely encourage all of you uh, to you know be paying attention uh, as we start to have sessions around these topics at conferences and and calls like this one, so that you can have your voice heard as part of that conversation. Natalie, do we have any more uh, hands raised? We do not. But right now, I just want to let you know it is 16 minutes until the top of the hour. So. Okay. All right. Um, well, I think I want to just, um, you know, there's, I want to just leave it open for a minute, but uh, ask Mike if there's anything that you could tell us from your experience, and you shared some of this already uh, in terms of talking about, you know, the role that your advocates, your advocates and, and your advocacy community plays uh, in policy, um, you know, do you have any advice kind of for people who are listening to this call who are both customers of these services and also often advocates within their own communities? Do you have advice that you could give them so that they can advocate in ways that are effective from your perspective sitting inside the industry that has to answer to those advocates? One of the things that I think has worked well for the relationship that my agency has with our advocates is that some of our advocates understand the business behind what we operate. They know 
that we we don't operate for free. You know, <laughs> there are bills that are due. Um, there are performance standards that have to be met. And they realize that because we've educated them on that. Um, we, in our community advisory committee, every month we do an operations update and we report our key performance indicators to them so they know where we stand. And over time, that has educated them on some of the important aspects of the operation. So when they ask for something, they have a better understanding of the business side of uh, paratransit. So I, that's one thing that I would recommend. On the advocate side, demand to know what are the implications of, of your paratransit operation. And on the agency side, it's share the information. Don't hide it. You know, um, A lot of transit agencies don't report their performance on their website. And it's really hard to find out you know, what the on-time performance of the paratransit system is or what the accident rate is or the complaint rate is. But sharing it can be very powerful and useful. Um, and I think the customers appreciate that. And then they can uh, fine tune what they're asking for uh, and do so in a helpful way. Yeah, that's, that's actually great advice. And, now I, and, I, and I'm curious because you're in a, multi, a multi-provider environment. So you have, you have uh, private sector companies running your service and you have, it in, you know, you have six different uh, zones of service. When you uh, publish statistics, do you publish them as the agency or do you publish them by zone so that that customers can kind of see who's doing well and also so that the providers themselves can see who's doing what and how well so that they are recognizing where they sit in the ecosystem, which, of course, healthy competition is not a bad thing. Yes, we publish both. Mm-hmm. agency-wide and by region. And we do so every month and it's available on our website. It's, it's in full frontal view for anybody who wants to see it or read it um, or listen to it. Um, so yeah, we're, we don't hide behind our numbers. It's out there for everybody to gather. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm just going to check in periodically. We're getting close to time anyway, but Natalie, did we have any hands raised? No. Okay. Wow. You know, I'm a little surprised, but um, I'm, I, I think it's great to have these kinds of conversations, even when it's just a few people having them, because, you know, this is information that we can take back uh, to the rest of the organization. And those of you who are on this call in chapters, I would encourage you, we're going to share uh, information from uh, LA Access that, uh, in terms of about the Parents with Disabilities Program, and we'll share some general information as well. And I would encourage you to, you know, to take a look and see what other systems are doing. And you, know, you might be thinking, well, LA Access is really big. They can do things that our system could never do. And I'm going to tell you that I'm not sure that size matters as much as we think it maybe it does. And there's a lot of things that smaller systems can do. And in some ways, they might actually be able to do some things a little easier uh, because they're not answering to 46 different agencies that, you know, that basically are telling them exactly what they want to do at the local level. So I have to think, Mike, and you can tell me if you agree that that even if even though it it works in L.A., it may still work in other smaller cities as well. Yeah, I'm sure there's some things that are easier for us to do and some things that are much more difficult for us to do. And you you nailed one of it. Uh, we have 46 masters that we have to uh, please. Yeah. Um, we have six different operating contractors that we have to work with. Uh, we have to smack them on the hand when they're not performing well and uh, when they're having financial difficulties due to the pandemic or the recession, they come to us with an open hand. So it's challenging. Uh, but yeah, size does help us in some areas for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely you have a lot of balls in the air uh, when it comes to you know trying to run this program. And um so, you know, I don't want to belabor the point too long. Uh, do we have any final, re- Mike, do you have any final remarks? And, and Natalie, if we have any other hands, we're getting close to time. We have no hands. Okay, then I'm going to just, Mike, give it to you if you have any final remarks, and then I'm going to come back and, and um, just talk about kind of where we go from here. No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about uh, what Access Service has been up to and uh, 
if you want to share my contact information, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, and uh, glad to be with you tonight. Great. And I appreciate your being here. Um, so Untangling Transportation, again, folks, we do this monthly. And uh, our calls are on the third Wednesday of each month. So you are welcome to join and uh, let other people know. Calls are published on the ACB community calendar. And um, we also, um, as, as a sponsor of the call, Accessible Avenue, we are happy to take your name and add you to um, our list. Um, we're still kind of a small and growing and you know figuring ourselves out kind of, of organization. So at this point, I won't be able to spam you with tons of newsletters and all sorts of things, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but we're happy to share information with you um, as, as we develop it. A couple of things on the accessibleavenue.net uh, website uh, for you to check out. Um, a couple of things under free resources. We have a... Um, a couple of forms that you can use to document your experiences on transit. We have one for documenting good experience and one for documenting not so good experience. And we created those because uh, transit agencies usually want to provide good service. And uh, one of the things that's helpful for them is to have certain types of information. And, and what we find is that a lot of people, um, they know that they had a bad experience, but they don't remember the details. And so it's really hard for their agency uh, to uh, investigate and, 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 and make the service better. So we've created a couple of general resources that will get you about 99% of the information that any transit agency anywhere could think of um, that they might need. So check those out. Those are on our website. We also have um, guidance, and this is really a little bit more for agencies, but it's guidance on how to design an effective service animal policy Service animals are tricky in the world of transit because we're under some slightly different regulations than the rest of the, um, uh, of the uh, US um, economy that's covered by the ADA. Um, so we've created a framework for what, what are the six elements that every service animal policy should address. Um, so that's something that we're also sharing. And again, that's a little bit more agency focused, but you're welcome to check it out. Um, and we'll, we'll be putting more stuff up there in the future. So check out the accessibleavenue.net website uh, and check out these calls. And, you know, without any further ado, I know we're just a few minutes early, but uh, we'll let people have a few minutes of their lives back. So uh, next call is going to be on the third uh, Wednesday in May. And uh, we will get some topic information out about that soon. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, send a note to connect at accessibleavenue.net and let us know uh, what you would like us to talk about. Um, we definitely do think about what you all um, have asked us to cover when we put these calls together. So without any further ado, thank you again to Katie for streaming. Thank you to Natalie for hosting and thanks to Mike for joining us as a guest. And thanks to all of you for being there, uh, whether on the phone or on uh, ACB media. And uh, we will conclude the call.